So we're on the same story, week three. Huge change is happening in the church. Everything that Jewish Christians have believed up till now is being questioned and examined and is changing right from underneath them. So we've seen the story. Let me catch this up just in case you weren't with us. In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, Simon Peter receives a vision from God to go to Joppa. And while he's in Joppa, he receives another vision from God in which God demonstrates and helps Peter deal with his prejudice. Helps Peter understand that every single person, every individual ever created from any background, from any place, from any origin, is God's unique creation and absolutely loved by God in his relationship with them. Whether they acknowledge him or not, God loves them, cares for them, and wants more than anything else to have a relationship with them. Peter has to process that, and he struggles with it a little bit. But if you receive a direct vision from God, the best course of action is to respond with obedience. And Peter does. And as he responds internally, what he's processing about this new dynamic of who is God's chosen and who God loves and who God wants to be in relationship with, Gentiles, the group that has been on the outside, show up and request that Peter go to the house of their leader, their, the centurion named Cornelius. They are household servants, and they're inviting him to come back because Cornelius has gathered all of his family, he's gathered all of his employees, he's gathered everybody to hear about this love and salvation that God offers all people. Peter normally never would have done this, but because he's had a heart change, he agrees to do it, and he begins the day-and-a-half journey from Joppa up to the port of Caesarea. In Caesarea, he hears their story. He hears how Cornelius had a vision that God was accepting him, and God wanted him to understand the fullness of what we call now the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ and his love for them. As Peter is explaining and bringing them up to speed, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they begin to have a Pentecost experience, a second Pentecost experience. This time, Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. This time, this outside group, this time, this group that had been declared and sort of determined unacceptable, unfit for a relationship with God, clearly demonstrates They have a relationship with God. They have received salvation. They are forgiven, and God is living and dwelling and working in them. In that moment, Peter realizes that the changes in his heart have now become an application of change that is new information for the church. Peter leaves from Caesarea and comes back to Jerusalem to share with his friends in Jerusalem what God is doing, and that salvation is available for the Gentiles. And that's where we pick it up. We're in chapter 11, we're in verse 1, and we pick up Peter's story as he receives those individuals in Jerusalem. It's in a sense he's coming back to his home church, back to his home church leaders. He's coming back to where he had left out from on this journey, and he's going to explain to them what has taken place. And so we've, we've used t- 
titles and, and words to describe a journey, uh, a pilgrimage, you know, and then this one, this one's no exception. I'm simply referring to this one as rerouting with confidence. You know what I'm talking about. You're making a drive and you're dependent upon GPS, which is a difficult trust at best for many of us. And then the little voice comes across the GPS, depending on whatever accent you've set your voice, and says, there is slow traffic 15 miles ahead. I am rerouting your course. And then you get asked that question that most of us just can't stand. Would you like me to set the new course? If so, press, press yes or say yes. If not, press no. And I stand there and I look at it. And when I had a right hand, I would reach over to the dash and to the screen and I would go back and forth. Do I want to reroute? Do I not want to reroute? Do I want to go a new direction? The bottom line of the question is, do I trust GPS? And by this time, it cycles off. <laughs> and now I'm like, I finally, I finally got to the place I'm willing to trust it, and it's gone. And I'll just be honest, candid, I don't know how to get back there. I don't know how to come back and say, I was processing the decision, give me a little longer. I don't know how to tell it, okay, I'm gonna trust you. If there's slow traffic and you have a better pathway, let me take that pathway. I am just not willing yet. And, I, and this is, I mean, this is, what is my car? It's like a 2015, I think. So whatever that is, somebody better than me can do the math on that real quick. That's eight years, nine years I've had that vehicle. And I still don't trust it. I mean, how does she know? How does she know what the traffic is up ahead? And how does she know the best route? And she wants me to make this decision without any clarification. I don't get it. When I start GPS, she says, you have three routes available to you. Which would you like? Very politely. And I pick what I want. But now at this point, there's no conversation. There's no collaboration in this decision. She's just telling me, you need a different route and you trust me and no one else. That's hard. I'm old enough, I have a lot of history of trusting people and it didn't work out so well. And I'm trusting this voice, which I realize is not related to a people. But I'm old enough that I still struggle trusting technology at times. And so it happens every single time. It doesn't help that sometimes I'm justified. Sometimes I drive that next 12 miles and I'm going, where was the slow traffic? Where were you really going to take me? The Texas Tow Road Authority has control of my GPS and you were gonna move me on to more tolls. Rerouting is not easy. 
Now, you take the necessity of change, you take the necessity of changing your course of action, you, cha- you take the necessity of changing what you know works and what you know has worked well for you historically, it's worked well for you personally, it's worked well for your forefathers, your parents, your grandparents, generations before you, it's worked well. And we have no problem with this and suddenly we're confronted with new information that says you need to change. You need to reroute. And God expects us to do it with confidence because ultimately we're trusting him. And I'm just going to say openly and honestly and candidly, it can be difficult. In Hebrew, I mean in the book of Acts, in chapter one, the whole situation begins to play out. And so it says in that first verse that the apostles and the brothers and the sisters, these are Peter's spiritual family who were throughout all of Judea. And here's the key phrase. If you're underlining or or highlighting something, heard that, heard that. Don't you love it? We hear. I hear stuff all the time. I've gotten into a little game with our staff and I say, okay, we heard that. Let's count how many sources we've got before we get to the actual root of the conversation. Oh, we've heard that from four different levels of people. What are the odds that it's possibly true or accurate? Very little. They heard that. They, they, the apostles, the brothers and sisters, the church in Jerusalem heard and understand that in some way or another, the Gentiles had also received the word of God, which is Luke's way of describing, they understood the message of Jesus and they have accepted the message of Jesus, which now requires the church to accept them as brothers and sisters. I don't think Luke makes an accident in just even this first verse when he acknowledges that you have church leadership, then you have church family, and they're the ones who have heard that, guess what? We have new cousins, and it's the group that we don't like. It's the people that we don't like. It's the ones that do things differently than we do, and I'm just not sure about it. And now Peter is there to explain what takes place. And that begins to unfold in verse two. So if you're looking at verse two, you have rumors of change, and now Peter's going to explain the vision for this change. In verse two, when Peter went to the uncirc- when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. All that means is these are true, pure blood Jews. True, pure blooded believers in Jehovah God who have understood that Jesus is the Messiah and so now they understand Jesus and Jehovah are the same names and the same God. There isn't a distinction. There isn't a difference. The God of the Old Testament is the God of what will become for them the New Testament, what is for us the New Testament and they are trusting him. But these outsiders What are we going to do with these outsiders? So the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain this to them step by step. 
I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven. And it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or richly unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again in heaven. In this moment, Peter recognizes that he has received a vision, and he shares the vision for the change that he has witnessed take place, which is critical. It is so important. And it, it, it's, that, that's my frustration with GPS, is that there is no vision for the necessity of change. There is a brief exclamation. There is a, briefly, she says, there's slow traffic ahead. She doesn't tell me why the traffic's slow. She doesn't, it's inadequate information. I don't know if there's been an accident. I don't know if there's a speed trap and people are slowing down. I don't know that if it's just a traffic jam or is there a construction. The last time she did this to me, we were about to enter Austin, Texas, which has probably the single worst driving in the entire state of Texas. And I'm like, how in the world am I supposed to know what's up ahead? Why are we changing course? If she had said, James, climate change protesters are gluing themselves to the freeway, you need to go through Lampasas, I would understand the necessity for change. If she said they're doing construction again, I would understand the necessity for change. If she had told me what was actually going to happen, because this was when that big ice storm and snowstorm came through, I left out of here late Sunday night after a special service that we'd had that afternoon and was headed up into West Texas for a pastor's retreat and meeting that I was supposed to be a part of. And as I hit Austin, they were de-icing the roads. There, were no, there was no ice. There was no ice even predicted. There were occasional snow flurries. I had no problems with snow. I had no problems with ice. I had no problems on the trip, except that Austin had lined up their de-icing truck side by side so that as I pulled up behind them and they were moving exceedingly slower than I was moving, the de-icing went all over my car and all over my windshield. Now, the only problem is it had been 19 degrees since I left Brenham a couple hours ago. And so without really thinking, because in Southeast Texas, we don't have to deal with these conditions very often. I reached over, thought, no big deal. I can't see out my windshield because now I have de-icing material all over my windshield. I'll just turn on the washer. The only problem is it had frozen somewhere between Brenham and Giddings. And so there was no water, there was no solution. And so I had to drive all the way to Bee Cave, not able to see out of my windshield. And it was too cold to stick my hand out and try to do it. She didn't tell me anything. She just said the change has to happen. We need information to process. And in this, Peter simply says, this is the vision. This is what God told me. Before this happened, I understood 
that God was setting a new standard. God was setting a new legal definition of which people he considers acceptable. Which people he considers qualified for forgiveness. Which people he considers qualified for grace. Which people groups he considers available for mercy. And the simple answer, which has been true, God didn't change his mind in the, in the book of Acts. God had always said, let my light be visible to all peoples. Let the message of my hope, my acceptance, my forgiveness, my holiness, which requires repentance, let that message be for all peoples. It's just that sometimes as people, we get confused and we put a lot of our own rules in. And it had gotten confused and now God wants to clarify it. The hope of a life in relationship with God forgiven and made holy because we can't do it ourselves. We can sing it all day. We sang a couple of my favorite songs today, Doran. I appreciate that and glad to be a part of that today. Um, but I can't make myself be holy. It's only God working through me and in me that I can become holy because it's his holiness in me. And the bottom line of the vision is everyone has the privilege of being able to receive that. It's okay to question change. And that's one of the things I want to get across today. But there will come a point, like Peter, when we'll have to move beyond the rumors and move beyond the questioning. There, there is, it's completely legit that the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout all of Judea heard that Gentiles had received the word of God. There's no problem with that. But now they've received the vision. And now they're going to have to decide, will we take advantage of this opportunity for change? Will we embrace what God's doing now, even if it forces us to redefine some of the things, and I'm very careful to say it this way, that we've done in the past? Because those things weren't God's. Those were ours. The things that we hold on to the tightest, the things that we're most unwilling to change, are not God's. They're, they're us. It's what we like. It's what we want. It's what we have decided defines us and who we are. God has faithfully loved all people of all creation at all times. God isn't changing his mind, and that, that would be a huge mistake in accepting the opportunity for change. If we assume, okay, God changed his mind, okay, we'll shift now. No, God had to change Peter's mind because Peter's mind was in the wrong place. It's not that God changed his mind because God was in a different place. It's that Peter had developed a habit that habitually took him to the wrong place. And so the vision confronts him and we already know this because we've read the other passages up to this point. We know that Peter accepted the change and accepted what God was doing. And now he's testifying that to this group of circumcised believers. He's, he's testifying, no, I understand. I heard the voice say, don't call anything God has made impure. Peter accepted it. But now we have to look at the opportunity, and we have to accept it, and that's what happens in verse 11 as Peter describes what happened 
in the moment he was with the Gentiles. At that very moment. So we're still in chapter 11, Acts chapter 11 in verse 11. That's kind of hard to say. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me, and that's key. I'm going to highlight a couple of phrases in this passage. That is key. If you're not sure, then take the time to pray, to think, to contemplate, to meditate, to read Scripture, to understand that this is what the Holy Spirit's saying. It's not as hard as it seems. At first, it can be a little daunting. The concept that God's talking to us when you haven't had a relationship prior to that moment of trust and faith when you ask Jesus to be a part of your life. But over time, as you read the Scripture, as you listen to Christian music, as you participate in worship, as you come to church and fellowship with other believers, you will learn how and you will notice how you can have these moments when you recognize that voice I'm hearing somewhere in my head, in my heart, it's not just my reason. It's God speaking to me. The Spirit spoke. Peter says in verse 12, the Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. This is one time where Peter's impetuousness does him a favor. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, and here's where the decision making comes on the opportunity. If then, God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. How could I possibly hinder God? If you haven't underlined or highlighted or made a note about anything else I've said, look at verse 17. How could I possibly hinder God? When I choose to ignore the GPS because I don't trust her, and in my head I've got all kinds of appropriate rationale. She does it to me all the time in Houston. I have a deadline. I am either headed to a meeting, I'm headed to a conference, I'm headed to a luncheon with other pastors. Many times I have leadership responsibility in those environments. I'm headed to a funeral where I have the singular leadership responsibility. And she's asking me to change my route. And I know I have timed this route. And I know I have exactly a limited amount of time to get there. And I'm having to say I'm willing to change to a more unfamiliar route in a more unfamiliar place so that I can't do it by memory, I can't do it by landmarks, I can't do it by the tried and proven pathways that I am accustomed to, I will have to trust her or him, if you've got a him on yours. Mine's a her. I think you can change it, but I never have bothered to figure that out. I'd be more irritated if it was a guy, so I'll probably leave it as a her. He would get on my nerves. And so, 
there comes a point when you have to make a decision. And truthfully, rerouting GPS, that's a frustration that's probably common to all of us, which is why I chose it for an illustration in this passage. But the reality is there's not that much at stake. I think there's stuff at stake. I, I, think, I think it's to the end of the world. Well, my goodness, what if I'm five minutes late? For me, that bothers me deeply. I mean, if it's five minutes till the appointed time, in my mind, I'm already late. And so that bothers me a lot. But it's not the end of the world. But this phrase, this phrase is potentially the end of the world. How could I possibly hinder God? I had the opportunity before I was here in the Tomball area, in the Tomball region, to work with churches in the inner city. And one of the things we did during those years when I was there in the inner city is we went to churches that were dying, literally dying. In many cases, they had less than a dozen members left, less than a dozen people attending, and the average age was around 83 to 84. Those churches literally had a trajectory of no future. But trying to convince those churches we put in a missions plan where we would step in, we would put leadership into those small churches, but we changed the demographic. It became a Nicaraguan church. It became a Cambodian church. It became a Vietnamese church. It became, it became an African-American church. It became, and on and on and on. It was never going to be the same church ever again. That's a hard decision. These are faithful people of God. Faithful people of God who have trusted him and who have served in that church in many cases for multiple decades. They raised their kids in that church. In many cases, they saw grandchildren come to know the Lord in that church. But God wanted to reroute them. And in some cases, they accepted that opportunity for change. They heard and they understood how and what if I hinder God in my decision making. And they changed. And those churches, and I've been gone now 15 years, those churches succeeded, reached new populations and are alive and thriving in the inner city of Houston today. But there were churches, there were some that said, no way. I refuse to believe that this would somehow hinder God because God has always done this here, this way. And those churches are gone. In the 17 years I was in the inner city of Houston, I saw in our region, in our territory, so to speak, I saw 44 churches close their doors to never reopen. And they can give you all kinds of reasons. The demographics shifted, the school district shifted, the, the education level. They can give you all kinds of reasons, but the bottom line was they wouldn't change. That is the bottom simple line, as harsh as it may feel, they just refused to change. 
I love earlier in the book of Acts, when a Pharisee, a religious leader, is in a meeting, his name's Gamal, and as he's in the meeting, everybody's talking about how we need to shut down this Christian thing. We need to shut down these followers of Jesus. These people are radical. These people are different. They are doing things the way we have not done them in our synagogues. We need to shut them down. And Gamal speaks up and says, let them be. If it is of God, it'll succeed. But if it's of God and we fight it, we may find ourselves fighting God himself. It's, it's hard. How could I possibly hinder God? The difference between the church and every other organization in society is that the church is eternal. Scripture bears witness to this. Governments will fail. Governments will collapse. Governments will cease to exist. Institutions precious to us like education and business and commerce will fail and will cease to exist. The only eternal thing on the face of the earth is the souls of men and women. I'm using that generically. The souls of God's creation will live forever. You have the privilege. I have the privilege of being a part of something that is eternal. Not the buildings, not the structures, not the way we do things, but the heart of who we are. We are Jesus' bride and he is taking us home to be with him. We get to do this forever. Not listen to me in case you're worried. But we get to be together and we get to worship and we get to love God and we get to experience him for all eternity. Let's just make sure we don't fall in love with the temporary things and begin to think those temporary things are supposed to be permanent and find ourselves hindering God. There's great news in verse 18. In a rare and unique moment when it comes to church history and church life and church change, in verse 18, when they heard this, they became silent. Makes sense. This is hard information to grasp. And... And that's the key. This is the last phrase I want you to underline or highlight or make a note of. They glorified God. Saying, so then, God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. They just, they stopped. And they decided to celebrate that change. All right. God has given Gentiles salvation. One of the biggest and most difficult decisions in the book of Acts that will continue to be a part of the book of Acts. We're going to have another meeting to talk about it in chapter 15. 
But the heartbeat of the church and the heartbeat of the leadership of the church said, if this is what God's doing, then this is what I want to do. I'm not implying in any way that it's easy because it's not. And I'm not implying in any way that things we love aren't precious to us because they are. But I am saying the American church as a whole is at a unique period of history. And we either decide to ask God, what is it you want to do? How do you want to reach this generation of believers? And we join him. Or we make the decision, like those early Pharisees, to fight against him and attempt to hinder him. But God cannot be contained. If we choose to fight against him, we lose. But if we choose to join him and say, okay, God, my heart's open, change it, mold it, direct me, we win. Because he wins. And after all, isn't that how Jesus told us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some groups stop right there, but that stops right before you get to the party. For thine is the glory. For thine is the glory. Father, may we always, in every way, follow you first and foremost. And if I need to change, if I need to do things differently, then show me how to do that. And I will admit, every year that gets harder and harder. But I don't want to hinder you. I don't want to be in your way. I want to be with you fully and completely, and I want to do all I can with every breath I've got till the very last moment to reach anybody we can possibly reach. Father, our generation, this period of history has the first real opportunity to reach the entire global surface of all people groups with the message of hope that's found in Jesus. Whatever it takes out of my personal life, whatever it takes out of my finances, whatever you need to do to make things different, that's what I'm willing to do. Any sacrifice on my part pales in comparison to what you did on the cross when you gave your life that my life might be restored and become meaningful. We love you. We're your church. We're your people. And this week, we'll do everything we can to help others know they are invited into this life-changing relationship with Jesus.